0: On screen. There are many great resonances about being an actor. One of my first attractions to acting was that I could forget about Patrick Stewart. To not be Patrick Stewart, if only for a few hours a week, was such a relief. And there was a price to pay for that.
1: The knighted Shakespearean captain of the Starship Enterprise, international treasure, and master storyteller is here in the house. And uh, he brings with him conversational delights lifted from his 83 years of life. We have tales from his humble beginnings. We talk about how the theater saved him and how childhood trauma informed his career, which, of course, led us into a deep dive on mental health generally and his passion for mental health advocacy. We also talk about friendship, particularly the nature of his beautiful friendship with Sir Ian McKellen. We discuss legacy, longevity, craft, mentorship, and why Star Trek is just so indelible, which of course led to brief thoughts on UFOs, and also this incredible story about the ghosts that he is absolutely convinced took up residence in his Silver Lake home. All of these stories and themes are more fully elaborated in Sir Patrick's wonderful new memoir, Making It So. As a long time Trekkie, this one was a dream. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So uh, here we go. This is me and Sir Patrick. You look amazing. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, you don't look a day older than you look in Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, I I, want to know what your longevity secrets are. You're so spry and with it and funny and present and fit. Uh, There's got to be some secrets. Work. That's it? Staying plugged in?
0: Well, it has been for me in that life as opposed to work can get quite complicated in our business, Mm -hmm. you know, the hours are long, you could be anywhere in any corner of the world. I came from a very work conscious background. Um, My father was proud of of what he did, even though as you may have seen in the book that he, um, the highlight of his career was uh, Second World War. Mm 10 years in India in the 20s. The moment he heard my mother was pregnant, he took off. And he ended his military career at the end of 1945 as a regimental sergeant major Mm -hmm. of the parachute regiment. And uh, that meant everything to him. He was very, very proud of that. One day, a guy, just after my father died, he, um, I met him in a pub and he said, I know you, you're Alf Stewart's son. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, your dad, you know, when he walked on a parade ground, the birds and the trees stopped singing. What do you make of that? What does that mean? Presence, I think. I mean, I know what it means as an actor that... I know mostly that from watching other actors. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody walks on stage and you go, oh my God. Now, I don't know why that happens, but there is a a focus, a concentration, um, an intensity, objectives that uh, make them, and other people, yeah, you forget that. They're there yeah,
1: sometimes. no, you know those people when they walk into the room—the the, the sense of weight and charisma and gravitas that he obviously earned—and and what you just shared, uh, uh, you know, has a sensibility of of kind of reverence and and respect for who he was. But he was a he was a challenging guy as well. He was not a he was not an easy guy to grow up underneath. Uh,
0: oh n- n- no, I, I mean. He first came home when I was about 15 months old, and I have no recollection of that. And one more time, I think in 1943, he came home when I was probably four. And I just have memories of a man in a uniform looking kind of exciting, I thought at the time. No, the problems began when the war ended, mm-hmm. and um, his his colonel said, "So, what are you going to do, sergeant, when uh, you know when you get back home?" And my father said, "Oh, I'll get a job," and he said, "Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about." And he explained that uh, he had contact at the Dorchester Hotel in London. Now, the Dorchester is one of the Top four or five hotels, historic hotels sure. in London.:
1: Famous for its high tea. That's right.
0: Yeah. which by the way, I recommend, if ever I've done you it once have yes. you've done it once? <laughs> yeah, I have. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, Americans love it. Mm-hmm. It's great. And uh, he, he said they, uh, there is a vacancy coming up in, in a few weeks for a doorman, an assistant doorman. but the doorman. He's going to be retiring in two years' time, and his job would be yours, Alfred. And, uh, and my father said, wow, that's great. And there was a an apartment that came with the job in wow. the hotel. Wow. They said, you're married, aren't you? And he said, yes. And he, they said, well, we'll employ your wife, too. She could get a job in the hotel as well. I mean, it sounded wonderful. And yet. My wife, yeah, my wife, his wife, my mother said, "No." I'm not leaving West Yorkshire. This had been my home all her life. And it had, it had. In fact, the, the little town we lived in, a population of 9,000.
1: And it has its own wild dialect that's indecipherable to most of us, right? Yeah, Using words not know like what that's talking thee about. <laughs> the
0: and thou and like, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> right. crazy the way that's that right. you grew up speaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was not allowed to say thee and thou to my father though. Whack that Why, it was a ter- that was an disrespect. insult. but I, I mean as a as a child uh, playing and uh, you know you could say to people oh, the which was always critical in some way or uh, or tha was was the way that we shortened it that doesn't understand lad you know that they don't know that didn't know what they're talking about so there was this semi ancient speech that was mm-hmm. ours and in fact, I spoke a strong dialect when I was a child. And when I was 13, I had to lose it. Because yeah. Can you bring it back at all? My, my family have always told me, oh, you can't do Yorkshire anymore. No, you, you changed your accent. And I did. Uh-huh. I learned a new accent, which was RP, received pronunciation. Uh, classical BBC news Time English. Not anymore, because now they deliberately employ people with accents. Mm-hmm. And, and the world has become a more relaxed and easier place. In many respects, some of them not good. And um, it's, it, it, it's, it's a better time. But back then, um, well, let me think of anything I could say. Okay, uh, there's a very simple one. When I would go to a friend's house, he would open the door and I would say, i would lick it out. Translate that for me. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Atta, art thou. Lakin, 15th century word for playing. Actors in Shakespeare's day were called Lakers. Wow. Not um, that's kind of amazing. Not given but given fans. The,
1: the Los Angeles Lakers, yeah, there's a double entendre there that's super yeah. interesting.
0: Well, it's, it's a, certainly a 14th century word. It could be older. Atta lakin, at a a, out. Are you coming out to play? Is the translation. Wow. So it was, it was dialect, it wasn't accent alone. I would go home to my family and they mm-hmm. would say, you're not a Yorkshire <laughs> lad anymore. It. Not anymore. Yeah. You're not. Disowned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Disowned. Um, um, my mother liked it because she liked to hear me speaking very, very grand. Uh-huh. You know, when I had an accent like this, which was very, very cultured and uh, official and sophisticated. Um, I don't talk like that anymore. Right.
1: Right. Um, back to your your dad a little bit. I mean, you spoke about you know, some of the things that he did in World War II. I mean, this was a guy who, you know, ended up, I think he was, was he airlifted out of Cherbourg, like around uh Dunkirk, right? Yeah. So this guy had done a lot. He's, They'd he's already parachuting into Dunkirk. Crete and like doing some, some pretty ballsy, crazy stuff, but he yeah. comes home, finds himself back in Yorkshire. And, you know, it's pretty... It's pretty easy to kind of identify what was going on with him now, given what we understand about what happens with veterans when they return from yes. conflict zones, yes, but at that time it was just shell shock, nobody understood it, and of course, with that there's domestic violence, there's alcohol abuse, and you know a whole yeah. you know array of sorted behaviors that uh you were on the kind of receiving end of as a as a young person
0: yes um. At the hands of my father, unlike my headmaster, I didn't um, receive personally any violence. He would raise his hand several times. And the moment that he did that, I would mm-hmm. freeze and become something that he wasn't going to hit. Um, he beat my mother, and he did it in front of me and my brother who was five years older than me. I was the baby of the family. And uh, it was uh, appalling. And I, I mean, I've only subsequently learned. I, I, I did a, a television program for the BBC quite a few years ago now, and, and they had a specialist of PTSD on the show. And um, he'd, he'd been told about my father, and then he talked to me and he said he was ill. And if it's possible at all for you to allow that to become part of your recollection of your unpleasant childhood, Um, he was sick and could not control himself. So it was a mental condition as much as anything. And he was angry. And uh, I always thought that once I heard this story about the Dorchester Hotel, that he was he never ceased to be angry with my mother because he knew Mm. that that job would have been perfect for him. Because he was smart. He had conversation and he could talk. He had language. And then he had this dialect, which was people loved to hear. They thought it was charming. He would have been a star standing in the front door of the Dorchester Mm. Hotel.
1: Yeah, so he held on to a certain resentment, took out his frustration, on the people that he cared about. And it's, it's interesting to hear you share that because oh. with that realization that this was an illness, that he was a victim of something he had no control over, allows you to then have compassion, not only for your mother as a as a you know victim of domestic abuse, but also for the perpetrator um, to have some kind of empathy for why he ended up behaving that way, which in okay. turn gives you a certain Freedom, you're liberated from holding on to your anger around that. And I know it wasn't, I mean, I don't think you shared that publicly until maybe 2010 or something like that. Oh, you held on to that ab- for a long time. Yeah. For
0: a very long time. I was ashamed. And I was ashamed that I couldn't impact what was so awful about my home life. I, I couldn't change it. Did you blame uh, yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I know that my elder brother did.
1: Yeah, yeah, because you were the younger. If anyone was going to feel like he needed to,
0: you know, make it better for you, it would be him. Yeah, yeah, he was, and he 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 only died last year. Um, and he took care of me, and if ever I was at any risk, he would protect me. And then as I got older and I wanted to do all the things he did, play soccer with him and his friends, play cricket with him and his friends. And, of course, he didn't want his kid brother to be hanging out with us at all because he was five years older than me. They all were, you know. And uh, he, he nevertheless always had an eye for me. And I only went into therapy Um. About the 90s, I'd never done it. What was the revelation of engaging with therapy? Well, one of the things I learned was how to listen because she mostly listened. I mean, when she did talk, she would say, tell me, how, in what way? And and so that if she was always inviting me to contribute... The conversations, but then as my time with him was for several years went on, um, we began to talk about mental issues, mental disturbances, bouts of anger. I still occasionally get them, <laughs> and I sure. know I know where it comes from. Yeah, um, it happened only a few days ago. I'm ashamed to uh-huh. say. And um,
1: well, uh, I had read that. Um, there was an article a couple of years ago that said that at eight, you're 83 now, right? 80, at 80, you were still in therapy. Are you still in therapy now? <laughs>
0: no, I'm not. You're not. Except- Cured, except, except for the occasional <laughs> angry outburst. <laughs> um, they don't happen very often. They're quite rare, I'm relieved to say. Um but uh, no i i i have two therapists now but i see them when i feel that there is a need mm-hmm. rather than it's not a daily mm-hmm. or a weekly event for me
1: i'm interested in the relationship between that childhood dynamic and and your your burgeoning relationship with the theater it feels like the theater is really what saved you finding yourself amongst a community of, of like-minded people at an early age becomes this true salvation for your, for your life. And you had a couple instrumental teachers and, and, and mentors that kind of guided you and nudged you in that direction, saw something in you
0: very early on. There are many, for me, great resonances about being an actor. And one of the strongest is the people I encounter, finding that there were in the world other young people, and some of them significantly older, who um, felt the same kind of isolation that I felt. And yet, in the company of actors, there was an almost intuitive uh, connection that was made between us. Um, And I was 12 years old, when I first was dumped into a uh, a large group of actors on a, a course that was run... It was a brand-new course run by the West Riding County Council in new Yorkshire, and um, the minimum age was 14. And it was in my headmaster's office that I met a man called Gerald Tyler. He's in the book. And he had come to say that the... Um, the county council were going to run an eight-day theater course, a residential theater course. (laughs) By that, it meant we had uh, camp beds to lie on in Mm -hmm. school classrooms. But nevertheless, from the moment that I arrived there, I was in the company of people like me. Now, some of them were highly educated. I mean, I got a big crush on a girl who was at grammar school, but it didn't work out i was at secondary modern school
1: to do with you (laughs) no no
0: um and and yet it was our love of acting performing of plays scripts texts um uh being in front of an audience which never scared me ever at all and there was a reason for this um One of my first attractions to acting was that I could forget about Patrick Stewart.
1: Right, that was my next question. How much of this, aside from finding like-minded people in this tribe of young artists, how much of it was an escape from your own life or the uh, opportunity to step outside who you were and just become somebody altogether different as a defense mechanism and not having to deal with whatever pain is kind of lingering in your subconscious.
0: You uh, explain it perfectly. Yeah, That's exactly how it was to not be Patrick Stewart. If only for a few hours a week was such a relief to explore being someone other than myself with a different background. I mean, the first role that I played other than this um, This thing that we'd done about the history of Yorkshire and Murfield, where I grew up, um, was uh, a comedy called The Happiest Days of Your Life. You may have encountered it very occasionally. It crops up in theatre, very occasionally. And um, it was all set in a private boys' school a rather exclusive private boys' school, and it was wartime, and a private girls' school had been um, found places in the school. So there were now boys and girls playing there. And I played a character, you see I remember his name, Mm. called Hopcroft Minor. He had an older brother who was Hopcroft. And, um, And it was such a joy... To be playing an upper-class child, even though I struggled with the accent, I didn't really have a, a, a proper received pronunciation accent until I was fifteen or sixteen. But I was learning. I was, and and sometimes it made people laugh when they heard me speak because it sounded so portentous and uh, you know. Um, so becoming someone else. That was the main attraction. yeah. And I could forget who Patrick right. Stewart was.
1: But, but not with any self-awareness around that. It's not as if you understood, I mean, a young person wouldn't, wouldn't be expected to understand that, oh, I'm doing this because I'm trying to you know, get away from this other thing. But you do have a moment when, um, when you were doing the Macbeth rendering that was set in a Cold War era where you connected the dots between your, your kind of actor sensibility and this character that you were inhabiting, tracing it back to your father. Do you know the story I'm, I'm, I'm referring to? Yeah,
0: I do. It was um, a great invitation to be offered that role um, by a wonderful actor called Rupert Gould, who was just starting out then, but is now very well established in the UK. Um, And he's done a couple of films as well. We both felt that... I mean, if you're interested in the theater, you know who Macbeth is and what he did. So we wanted to put him into a context in which what he was was understandable. And that was intriguing. Um, And I, I did go and talk to a lot of people and uh, about the, because Macbeth is ill mm-hmm. and gets iller as the play goes on. Um, you remember the story I told in the book about running into Ian McKellen in the, yeah. in the Charing Cross Road one day. And he said, so how's he going, Macbeth? And, and uh, oh, God I was so uncomfortable because Ian was the Macbeth of my generation, uh, him and Judy Dench, who played Lady Macbeth. I saw that production and Trevor Nunn directed it and it was amazing. And the cast just sat in a circle around a, a quite small studio stage and just stood up when their turn came. So it, it had an intimacy about it. But, um, and then Ian said to me, um, oh, um, if I can, there's, there's just mm-hmm. one thing I'd like to mention about playing Macbeth. And I said, anything at all, please. And he said, okay, um, the line that begins the famous speech, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty pace from day to day. He said, the most important word in that first line is and. And I had it in a flash. I knew exactly what he meant. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, creeps in this petty, pe- and you're rolling then, you're rolling. And it was He unlocked learning- it. He unlocked it for you. Oh, not, not just that speech, but it spread into the rest of the play. And I knew that Macbeth was inside me. Mm-hmm.
1: where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. But it's when you dress up in the costuming of the character and look in the mirror and you have this epiphany.
0: Yes, yes. Um, the first dress rehearsal, um, I'd grown a mustache, quite a heavyweight mustache, unlike my father's, who had a, a you know um, a very, very narrow, small, Sergeant Major's yeah. mustache. Uh-huh. And um, I was in uniform, uh, and it was the end of a battle. We were coming from a battle, myself and Banquo, And uh, I had an overcoat on. And I had a military cap pulled down over my face and a rifle slung over my shoulder. Um, And uh, I I was just getting these things on. The dresser was helping me. And then she said, have a look in the mercy, you think? And my father was looking back at me. Unmistakable. Mm. Him. And it gave me quite a shock. But then I saw the advantage of it. I knew him. He wasn't inside me other than he had been my father. And that allowed me to embrace him and bring him in and feel about him, both his rages and his fear and his sadness and the pain that he'd had because he'd had He'd been wounded several times, fortunately never very seriously, um, but he had been wounded. And of course he jumped out of airplanes.
1: Yeah. Well, just fascinating from the perspective of kind of unconsciously inhabiting this character and then finally realizing like, oh, this is what I was doing, you know, and yes. and being able to connect with that and develop a greater understanding of this complicated person. Yeah. and And also understanding that, on some level he contributed to your skill as an actor through that process is kind of amazing.
0: I wish that I could have told him exactly what you said. He got to
1: see you succeed. He passed away shortly before Next Generation though. Is that right? Yes,
0: he did. And he would have loved Next Generation, particularly that I was Captain Picard. Mm because he was always a non-commissioned officer, although he became the highest ranking non-commissioned officer. He was a field marshal of non-commissioned officers.
1: Yeah, you playing a military officer with, with, with great integrity would have appealed to him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It it really would. But then, you know, as time went by, I discovered that there was uh, an under the covers aspect to Picard as well. And um, when we came to do the new series Picard, um, we really examined that because the uh, writers and directors were very interested in mm. uncovering a man that we had seen almost nothing of. There was one scene in one episode when I screamed, I yelled at a woman and I threw something at a glass-fronted uh, i don 't know cocktail cabinet or something and shattered it and 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 this was shocking for people they 'd never seen jean luc Picard like this, but I knew how to do it yeah and uh it's, it's inside you it was inside you the whole time yeah it's um and there was a price to pay for that, yeah in rehearsals um I just delved into all of that and put it into the role. Um, By then I'd had uh, two divorces and um, I was to blame for both of them. Mm.
1: I watched the first uh, episode of of Picard from season one the other night. And uh, I was really struck by, there's that scene where you're being interviewed and your buttons get pushed and then the you know the the you you kind of unleash yeah, right yeah, and it yeah. reminded me of it was very similar to the uh Jack Nicholson uh Sorkin scene in A Few Good Men Colonel Jessup you know oh, yes. being 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 provoked just enough to let the lion out you know like yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> You, uh, you know, basically your version of saying "You want me on that wall, you need me on that wall." Like, did you order the code red? You're goddamn right, I ordered the code. The code red. Like that speech that you give is is very resonant of. It reminded me of that yeah. in there, and it's like that. There's that latent, you know, uh, not necessarily anger, a little self righteousness earned through experience. Yeah. Um, the other, the other kind of example of that for me was when you did. Um, when you were Leontes in in Winter's Tale, right, which is kind of a watershed moment in you, kind of reckoning with your past. Yes, it was, and um,
0: it it was uh, very challenging. When I read the play, first of all, I'd seen the play and found it interesting, but not uh, it didn't appeal to me in the way that so much of Shakespeare did. One day, I uh, I was in the green room of the royal shakespeare theater i was working there and uh, I, I had i'd been made this offer of leontes in the winter's tale and uh, sitting alone at a table was dame peggy ashcroft whom i didn't know but she was a member of the company but i wasn't in the play she was in and i said uh, dame may i may i sit by you and she said yes of course come on sit down and um and w- we had a chat, and I said, look, um, I- I've got to ask you this. I've been offered Leontes in Winter's Tale, and I saw her face change straight away. And um, I-, I said, I- I-, I I, don't know what to do about it. I- 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 could you give me any help or advice? And she said, turn it down. Uh-huh. Don't do it. Don't do it. He's a bad, bad man, and nobody likes him. The audience don't like him because he's vile to everybody there's nobody who's on his side except of course there's one good friend whom he kills and um i i i i said to her thank you you've articulated what i think i was feeling so that's great and then the director said well have you made a decision and i said yes i have and uh, i'm going to pass and he said tell me why So I did. And he said, can we meet just one more time and talk? And so we did. And um, he said, you see, Patrick, the reason why I'm so determined to have you play this character is that you're not going to have to interpret him. He's already inside you. I know that. I don't know how he knew it. Yeah. What do you think he I, saw that made him say that? I don't know. But
1: he is a psychologist, also, right? He is. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes, he is. Ronald Eyre is his name, and yes, he is. Um, brilliant, brilliant man, and he said, "If you do it, I give you my word. I will never leave your side. Not one moment. I will be there. There, and uh, he was too. Yeah. And uh, boy." It was hard. It was really hard. Um, But one thing that came out of it, I'm so grateful for, um, and I looked at it this morning and adjusted it. There is a photo on my desk of Winter's Tale, of me as Leontes and my dear beloved friend, Bernard Lloyd. We have been talking to him and I've been going crazy in the character. And... And they were taking photographs. It was a photo shoot, Mm -hmm. but they wanted action. They wanted the, the real play. And in this photograph, he has his hand on my arm and he's leaning towards me. And there is so much gentleness in his face, so much empathy and sympathy that when I was first shown that photograph... I knew it was for all time and it's been on my desk uh-huh. in a frame ever since then uh-huh. because that was that became the symbol of what kindness and friendship could mean in a in a relationship mm. because I had not been too good at that in my adult life and um and then Bernie died uh Actually, it's probably two years ago now, and I was with him um, until qu- quite close to wow. his death. And he, um, he he was very stiff and uh, hurting. And my wife said, "Sonny, said, can I can I just give you a little massage? I think I think it might help you." And he said, "Yes, well, okay, okay." And he stretched out, and she massaged him for half an hour. And then she hugged him, and then I hugged him, and we left. And we got to our car, and we burst into tears, both of us. So that picture of him touching my arm with such kindness is part of my daily life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that.
1: I mean, I think what I what I extracted or, or or took from that story and your experience of doing Winter's Tale was that you have this director who's also a psychologist who identified something in your psyche that needed to come out that would contribute to the performance and make it great and terrifying. And you know, I know there are stories of people in the audience who felt like we shouldn't even be watching this. It oh, was so oh,
0: intense. Absolutely.
1: But from a psychologist's point of view it's almost ingenious that he, it, it was a form of therapy for you to connect with that part, to realize that that piece of your dad is inside of you, or there's that unhealed, uh, you know, pain that resides in inside of you from that experience growing up, that still required you to, to you know, reckon with it and and, yeah. and look at it. And, and perhaps that was a piece in the puzzle that led you towards therapy and, and kind of making peace with this yeah. that has, on some level, you know, healed those wounds.
0: That's very true. And it, it was something that I could absorb into my work, into my acting, and my approach to bringing a, a role to life. Um, uh, Albee's great play, I think the great American play of the 20th century, I'm sorry, Mr. Miller, he wrote a play called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Sure. And... Um, I got to play George, the husband. It's a couple, two couples, a husband and wife who are middle-aged and a young married couple. Mm. Um, With a
1: tinge of alcoholism
0: sprinkled in. Oh, Lord, yes. (laughs) So much liquor in that. Um, uh, Yeah, and I had some experience of that too. Um, But my two broken marriages, I realized, gave me a profound sense of what had been going on inside me during that time when the marriages were breaking up, and that I could absorb them into George. I have another photograph that uh, sits on my desk, and um, it's... uh, it is, because I, I, it's going to be in the book when the photographs are put mm-hmm. into the book, it will be there. Yeah, I've just got the galley here. So I don't even have oh, the, the final yeah. one. It's not yeah. out yet. Um, th- there's, it's quite a collection of photographs. It will surprise people, which is good. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward yeah. to that, um, especially my childhood photographs. Um, but in in this one, I'm playing George and it's a scene when Martha, his wife, actually isn't on the stage. Um, It's a scene in the last act of the play. And um, I I was wearing a wig, uh, uh, thinning hair, but some of the hair was dangling over my forehead and my head is down and I look so depressed and fearful. And I, I know that that was authentic because I was able to tap into Mm. those feelings that I had. When When I was getting my first divorce and we were living apart and I went to bed at night, and this is the only time this has ever happened for me, I was in so much terror that my legs sweated just my legs nothing else at all wow. and i've heard that that can happen but it was an indication of what was inside me well one of the one of the great joys including captain jean-luc picard is that having to immerse yourself into someone else can be so rich in lessons and learning and understanding and Getting closer to other people as well. Yeah.
1: Well, it breeds empathy. You're literally walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Yes. And it changes your, your view of humanity, I yes. suspect. That's yeah, right. Yeah. When, when
0: I was doing Macbeth, I did it for exactly 365 days, the first and the last performance. Wow. For a whole year, I played that guy. I lived that guy. And it became not good for me. I mean, for one thing, I began drinking only when the show was over, too much, way too much. And um, I, I, his depressions and ferocity and despair towards the end of the play would begin to envelop me more and more as the evening or oh, matinee days, when we'd do it twice, wore on. And um, it, it, it became difficult.
1: How do you create healthy boundaries around that so it doesn't seep in? And oh. y- y- I guess it sounds like that's been a challenge for you. <laughs> if you yeah, end up, uh, yeah. you know, drinking a little bit too much yeah. and you know walking around brooding yeah. on on this character that you're uh, inhabiting, I've
0: learned, and Sonny, my wife, has helped me with this. That when I've finished a day on the set, it doesn't happen that often with filming, but it can do. But certainly when I come home from playing a, a stage role, I deliberately let it go, let it go. I mean, this is mm-hmm. the gesture that I use, shake it out. Whew, now I can go home and have some supper and not be in an absolute fucking misery. Well, it also, is what I was
1: has to be an insane high to do that every night, and yep. then you're supposed to just go home and go to bed yep. when your hormones are going crazy because you've just done this endurance event, this artistic endurance event, you know, in real time in front of a live audience who then receives you and you're you're feeling that you know energy of the crowd, and then you just you're supposed to just go to sleep after that. Like I don't know how that works, and I, I, I'm moment. always amazed at. Broadway actors who just get up every night or sometimes twice a night and do that for incredibly long stretches. Oh, It's unbelievable. Yeah,
0: I I have a limit now on how long I can do a play for, particularly if it's a play that I know is gonna be sucking me in. What's interesting
1: is before the podcast, you were sharing about how you just recorded the audio book for this. And you said that was one of if not the most difficult things that you've done most, as a performer. <laughs> no
0: question, most difficult.
1: Compared to being on Broadway every night or 20 hour days on Star Trek? But
0: I've already told you why. I'm being myself. That's really hard. Yeah, I wrote it and I had no intention of reading out loud, recording it when oh, I Oh, come on, it. of course you're gonna read your audio book. Uh, believe me it came as a shock
1: when my age your voice st- you think somebody else is going to voice you you in your, well, uh, your autobiography I, I, don't,
0: I don't listen to audiobooks uh-huh. i've never heard an audiobook i've never recorded one before i mean people keep saying you ought to do it you know it can be fun and you know it's interesting no i never wanted to do it and uh so it was in my contract, and it was only when I got around to reading the contract in detail that I saw that I was also committing to an audio book. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but Simon Schuster, and particularly Christina, the producer that I work with on the audiobook, has been fantastic. I, I can only do about two hours. I've once or twice gotten close to three, mm. and I've once rapped after an hour because... It just destroyed me, it wore me out doing it. It's so difficult. I met two actors who said, let's give you a warning. If you've never done an audiobook before, it is the hardest work you'll ever do. And I said, but you're sitting down with a microphone a few inches, I gotta be hard, they said. Well, if you do it, you wait and see.
1: I think people would be aghast if you didn't end up voicing the audiobook to this. It would be, it just would not be right.
0: Well, I'm doing it every morning. And that's one of the reasons why my voice is a little gravelly. Um, because um, I don't know what it is. It's what I'm putting into the morning's work. Mm. that, I, And I only ever stop recording when I think. It's time for my my voice to be rested. You know. Well, you sound great. You Thank mentioned
1: you. Uh, you mentioned friendship
0: a little bit earlier.
1: That photograph that's on your desk, um, which leads me to my curiosity around your your friendship with Ian McKellen. Which you know, I think we can all agree this is this is friend friend goals for all of us. Like, it's such a beautiful um, relationship that you have with this with this person. Uh, it motivated me to go on the internet and, and kind of find pictures of him as a young man, because oh. you describe him as just, there's a mythos around who this person was, even when he was young, you know many decades ago, uh, that, that just portrays him as larger than life. And, and sure enough, I mean, the, the images of him as a young man are just absolutely striking. Beautiful. Yeah. But he was somebody who was very intimidating to everybody somebody everybody knew was going to be on the rise and I think there's this idea that the two of you had been
0: friends from the get-go but that is not the case no 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 um we I first met him at the Royal Shakespeare Company but we never worked together only some years later we worked once we did a Tom Stoppard play called Every Good Boy Deserves Favor EGBDF Mm. and um Ian was in it, and uh, I I I was very shy of him. What was it about him? It was the way he listened when you talked to him. Because Ian is known as a talker himself, but he is a wonderful listener. And uh, I talked to him about things I'd never talked to another man about before. Yeah,
1: you said yeah. you said that. Uh you blame him for turning you into a child again.
0: <laughs> what does that mean? Um, well, I, I became silly and adventurous and playful. And uh, because he is, you know, he's got a great sense of humor and, uh, and a great sense of irony, particularly. Um, and so uh, uh, EGBDF was one thing. And John Wood and Ian McKellen were the two leading actors. I just simply played a psychiatrist. <laughs> um, I should be so lucky. And um, Ian, um, I, I I don't know how to... I've tried. I've sat in front of my computer for a long time, sometimes thinking about about Ian and the uh, the affection that I have for him and what he gave me when we worked together and when i watched him work on stage um and uh, and now in in our friendship it's it's as close to a love affair as i shall ever have with a man yeah
1: i i don't know if you know this but if you google ian mckellen patrick stewart one of the first things that pops up is this question is Ian McKellen married to Patrick Stewart. <laughs> but there's actually a really funny story uh, behind that. Do you know is? what I'm referring to? Yeah. So so at one point yourself, Ian and Hugh Jackman all appear on the Graham Norton that's show right. and yeah. Ian announces that he is going to marry you. Oh. <laughs> so there's 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 what he actually meant and there's how that
0: was interpreted. Yeah, that's right he was the priest at our wedding. And he was, he was, he had been qualified. And uh, and um, so far as I know, Sonny and I were only the, the only couple he married, although he had multiple offers. Once the word got around that uh, he was. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah,
1: so he, he ends up marrying you. I guess you were gonna get married in Nevada, but there there was a pesky state law around his Yes. His his ministry his his sort of legal.
0: Uh, you know. It was not recognized in Nevada, and so we would we would go through a mockery of a wedding.
1: So I think I think as I understood the story, uh, yeah, you were you were in Lake Tahoe, you were going to get married on the Nevada side, but he wasn't legally permitted to do that. So you all crossed the border into California and did yeah. an impromptu ceremony in a Mexican
0: restaurant. In a Mexican <laughs> restaurant at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, and, just uh, like a small group of you, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there were five of us. Hmm. Um, so we had witnesses too. Um, and uh, it, 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 <laughs> it was extraordinary.
1: Um, let's talk about Star Trek. What? Do you remember that part of your life?
0: It's got to be a blur, though. Most uh, of it's got to be oh, one big blur. Oh, yes. W- w- we recorded over. Um, How many seasons? Uh, Chris Swan will know. Seven seasons. <laughs> we did something like 174 episodes. Uh huh. And there are only a handful of them I remember. Yeah. The rest have just all gone into the melting pot. And, and But there are some vivid recollections i do have of certain episodes and certain actors that i worked with and uh, what that meant to me and, and and the fact that i was getting a a break in popular tv
1: sure yeah i mean this was a big deal you were you were i think it was uh was it levar burton who put a sign on your door that said something like beware uh, unknown British Shakespearean actor inside you. Like this was your introduction. I mean, you went from being this, you know, just a theater person yep. into the public consciousness yep. very quickly. And the story behind how you got Star Trek, which you go into in detail in the book is is super fascinating. I know Ian told you not to do it. He was trying to talk yep. you out
0: of it. Yep, he did. He was the only one who did. Um, He's apologized for that. Though, he, has, right? yeah. he has said. <laughs> he was wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But I think it's interesting, and, and interesting to try to understand what makes Star Trek such a special idea that has right. left such a, an indelible kind of mark on our culture and, and why it continues to persist and
0: but be so popular. I think the strongest thing is that it is a vision of the future and it is a positive, hopeful vision of the future. Oh, yes, dreadful things happen, have happened in Star Trek. But behind Gene Roddenberry's motivation for creating the, 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 the first series and then coming to work with us was that he wanted to leave behind a sense of positivity and hopefulness and confidence. And it's the one thing that he talked about with me. Um, And uh, actually, what he said was, "We, I I, I had lunch with him. Uh, We only had two meals together um, because we didn't have actually much in common." Mm. He played a lot of golf, and I don't play any golf at all.
1: Well, the first the first meeting with him didn't go so
0: well, right? He he did not want you for the role. It was a disaster. Um, And he hadn't invited me. It was my encounter with, well, Robert Justman had come to UCLA to see a a public lecture, which an actress and myself were illustrating with extracts from plays, uh, Shakespeare plays. And uh, he'd seen it. And he went back to the office the next morning. And he said, uh, we found our uh, captain." And uh, they said, "Well, what are you talking about?" And they said, said um, and, "And Gene and said, "Oh, Go well, get him in this morning. Let's have a look at him if he's, you think he's that good." And so that, uh, I, I got the phone call at nine o'clock in the morning, and I was in Jean's office at 11 o'clock that day. and uh, he got out of his chair. There were two other men in the room, including Robert Justman, who was the man who had been to see the play the night before and was blown away by it. Jean stood up and shook my hand. And then we talked for seven or eight minutes. And then Jean said, "All right, thank you very much for coming to see us." And uh, it was, uh, thank, thank <laughs> That's you. That. Goodbye." And uh, I left, kind of relieved, actually, that I was out of this weird atmosphere. But uh, six months later, <laughs> right. I was gassed.
1: Did you have misgivings about being this highbrow Shakespearean actor and, and dipping your toes into network television at
0: the time? I didn't know what I was doing. I'd been in, You've done uh, TV stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, some of it. I Claudius," the great BBC series right. about, uh, based on the, the two famous novels, "I Claudius and Claudius the God." Um, I'd been in that. I'd done a series about a policeman, um, which only lasted one season. Um, and uh, occasionally little bits of plays would turn up, and, um, but it was not a career for me, and I actually wasn't that interested. Really, the theatre was what I loved. Performance, being on stage, night after night after night, and um, that changed.
1: Yeah, you really came to embrace every aspect of it.
0: Yes, yeah. and I love it today. Yeah, film and television, and um, I'm worried that I may never get to do it again.
1: Uh, I think you're going to get to do it, do some more. Really? Yeah, I think you got. I think you got a little more in you. I think when I think about Star Trek, you know, I grew up with the original Star Trek, Captain Kirk, Spock, and all of that. And yes, there is a beautiful optimism to it, uh, perhaps not utopian, but optimistic enough, uh, which I think serves as a contrast to most science fiction. But also it's always been a show that has been fearless in terms of grappling with social issues. Like that's always been at the core of what the show is about it gives you an opportunity through allegory to explore um, things that are going on in culture currently that we're we're
0: struggling with. I I have to say, and this will sound unkind to maybe those who hear this, um, working with Gene Roddenberry was not easy. I mean, he never directed an episode. He was the executive producer.
1: Did every every big decision had to
0: get run through him? Oh, yeah, As the creator. A- absolutely, yeah. yes. I was very unconfident. In fact, when I started writing the memoir, um, I thought, the people are really going to want to hear me go on and on and on about Star Trek and maybe X-Men 2, and I don't think I want to. That's not the most interesting part of my career. I mean, that is a shocking thing to say because it's assumed, of course, that it is. And uh, I think that, uh, that throughout that first season... I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand television technique. I'd never had a class in television. In, in my drama school, we didn't do film and TV work at all, because you know nobody was expected to get it, because they were just film actors, and there wasn't that much television either. Um, and then um, I uh, I was determined that I would do better. And I knew even when I first saw it that I, the best thing that I was doing in the first season was space, the final frontier uh-huh. <laughs> that I got really good at. And why? Because I copied exactly what Bill has said. Mm-hmm. Bill Shatner. Bill Shatner, yeah. yes, yes.
1: Uh, yeah. But the 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 thing that's striking is when you're on the bridge, there is there is a theatricality to that in a very practical sense, it is a stage. There's a there's entrances oh, and exits, oh, and yes. and you have your you're sitting out. You're literally sitting on a throne. Yes. So there are there is a parallel that I imagine as a stage actor, you were able to connect with and tap into. I mean, it's very
0: Elizabethan. Oh, you're absolutely right, and um, uh, it it as it became more and more like that i began to feel more and more comfortable I, my first film was um it's in the book was um two afternoons or two mornings work in a film starring rod steiger rod steiger was one of my childhood heroes i'd seen um the pawn the pawn broker i'd seen um Uh, on the waterfront. on the waterfront yes and and absolutely loved them and uh and so he learning that i was um that this was my first ever day in front of a film camera he said what are you doing for lunch and i said i i don't know what do you do for lunch on a film set he said oh you go there and you order your lunch and they'll give it to you bring it to my trailer wow rod steiger is inviting me into his trailer. The man who said, "Take the job. Take the job." Right. in Legend. the back of that car with, uh, with um, with uh, Rod and uh, and um, uh, Brando. 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 Yeah, yes. but Marlon but, the, Brando. but
1: the the real the real kicker to that story, though, is it not uh, the fact that you shot that scene. You shot a scene in the back of the car with Rod Steiger for this movie. Yeah, I think you had to shoot him. Uh, and they were shooting all of his coverage. Yeah. And then when they finished that, they said lunch, and then he threw a fit.
0: Yeah, well, they said, uh, what they actually said was they did do all of Bill's coverage, some of which I was in. And then they said, okay, that's, uh, that's uh, all we need of you, Bill. Uh, you can go to lunch now. Right, Rod, you mean. Rod, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, we were sitting side by side in the back of this car. I hadn't actually shot him or killed him. No, I didn't get to do that. Um, He said, uh, what about Patrick? And they said, uh, oh, don't worry about that. We'll have somebody read in for you and it'll all be fine. And there was a long silence. And I could feel this heat growing on one side of me. And he said, "What the fuck do you think I am?" I mean, his voice going up, in his, and then he went for this assistant stage manager and uh, and said, "You think you think I've got to leave him now and he's all done my lines, and I, I'm going to leave him to do his own." And uh, and anyway, it was it was. In, it, and then that was when he said, "I'm sorry about." It. He apologized to me, and I said, no, "No, no, 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 that was fine." And he invited me to his trailer, and uh, he said, "The camera photographs thoughts." No one had ever said that to me before. I mean, that's the very heart of the method. Uh, which he was a pupil. I mean, he mm-hmm. he studied just like Brando did. So you carrying
1: that onto the, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, that sensibility of the camera can read your thoughts and also a leadership role as the captain sitting yeah. in the throne, remembering that Rod Steiger did what he did for this young actor doing his first movie. Like that that's a lesson, right? Like yes. this is how you, this is, this is, you know, it's not right. Like, and if you're the lead in a project, the tone is being set by how you comport yourself, mm-hmm. right? And understanding that exactly. you're now carrying that responsibility. Exactly, and this.
0: it's one of the reasons why I love playing the leading role. Yeah, Because I feel that I can help to give the other actors the best possible experience they could have. And, and I, I will always say, there are no number one actors. Mm. We're an ensemble. We work together. And I do remember, um, one of the things Rod always said, Rod said to me while on this lunchtime was, whoever is talking, he's the lead, whoever is. And that was amazing for yeah, an actor who only had right. half a dozen. Yeah, he lines. didn't have to. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. He was being kind and generous. And uh... oh boy! And, and then, then you, th- you ran into him oh, many years later, year, right? Yeah. Years okay. later, and uh, I was in New York. No, I was here in Los Angeles, and I was, I think, already working on Star Trek. And I went to this restaurant, and uh, we were looking around. It was very busy. And, there he was sitting at a table with three other friends. And I said to Sonny, oh my God, oh my God, there's Rod Steiger over there. And she said, go and say hello, go on. I said, uh, okay, okay, he won't know who the hell I am. It was years ago. So I went over and before I got to the table, he, he said, Patrick, and stood up. And it was yeah. one of the best memories of my the, career. The,
1: the gift that keeps giving. Yeah, him. right,
0: That's Yeah. That beautiful. Um,
1: I need to know about the paranormal activity that was happening in your Silver Lake house that you
0: talk about in the book. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Sounds like you were getting visited by ghosts.
0: Yeah, I, I bought a house on Moreno Drive in Silver Lake. One evening I came home, it, it was the floors were staggered down a steep hillside. And so the door from the garage led straight into the master bedroom. And uh, one night, I locked up the car, pulled down the door, opened the bedroom door, and the smell of cooking was intense. And I thought, I I must have left the oven on last night. Or why didn't I smell it? God. So I hurried downstairs. Nothing. Just the smell of cooking in the air and nothing else at all. Um, And then it, took on from there, um, footsteps on the stairs, um, voices in rooms where there was nobody. Uh, I came home one day, my son had been staying with me. He went to school here. Um, and uh, I, I, I got home and he said, oh, thank God you're home. And I said, why, what, is something wrong? He said, let me show you. And we went into my sitting room where I had a lot of bookshelves and all the books were thrown across, were scattered across the floor. And I said, what, what have you been doing? He said, I didn't do anything. I was watching television. And suddenly all these books were thrown into no the middle earthquake?
1: of the floor. Pardon? No earthquake. No earthquake,
0: no. Um, and uh, there was a place in the hallway, which I used to go through the house starting on the, the 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 ground floor and then work through my house turning lights off and all that there was because my television room was right on the ground floor on the the lowest deck of the house and i when i got to the middle floor which was the kitchen the living room and the dining room and so forth um i walked to the foot of the stairs and just before i reached the stairs i always walked through this icy zone it was just the temperature instantly plummeted, and I got to the foot, one foot on the step, and it was gone. I, le- I rented the house when, when after yeah. after three years, I moved somewhere else, um, and uh, I got a, a family moved into it, and they were lovely people, and one day they called me to ask about, I don't know, there was a problem with a washing machine or something that had gone wrong, and. And so we had a little chat. And then just as she was about to hang up, she said, oh, by the way, Patrick, there was something I wanted to ask you. You didn't tell us everything that came with your house. (laughs) They were having it worse than I was. And the child, exactly on this spot where I used to feel the temperature plummet, saw a man standing there. And I found out about him. I I became very close to my neighbors next door. They'd lived there for decades. And they said, yes, yes. Well, that was a man who died in a car accident, actually. Very violent car accident.
1: Who had lived in that house? Yes.
0: What do you make of all this? Well, that's only one experience that I've had. I've been in other places when I've just had, I mean, I, we, Sonny and I were looking for a house uh, in, in England, and um, we went into one, and it was empty. It, all the furniture had been taken out, but it was very, very old, 15th, 16th century. And um, we were going along, there was a long corridor in the upstairs floor, and uh there were doors off all the door off the corridor into the rooms, and I went into one room and as I got into the middle of the room, I felt hands around my throat and I cried out, "Help, help!" and Sonny came in and ran into the room and got hold of me and dragged me out. I was being strangled in that room, oh my God, um so it's and it's oh. The first time I saw it, I was 12 years old in a friend's, in a neighbor's house and... and uh, so this is, a, this is a recurring thing. I, I, I think I have um, some kind of openness, some kind of sense sensitivity that maybe it's history, I, I don't know. But um, I feel that I do hear voices occasionally. And uh,
1: and and what do you choose to to interpret from
0: that? What is your sense of that I'm tuned in to the afterworld,
1: mm. and that there's no there's no mistake or irony in you being uh, an actor who plays a character who goes and visits with aliens I all over the galaxy.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there <laughs> I mean, is. Come on,
1: and then you turn on the TV. And there's congressional hearings on UFOs and, and UAPs. That's like right. this, there's a convergence happening right now. That's what is right. going on,
0: Patrick? There is. It's extraordinary, and things being seen more and more
1: in the yeah. sky. Yeah. I
0: just hope that whatever happens happens while I'm still here. Yeah, um, I got
1: to let you go shortly here, but uh, there's two more things I want to touch on quickly. The, fr- the first thing is is is. Uh, you're a bit of an animal welfare advocate. There's a couple squirrels that appear and reappear in this book. Uh, you have an incident at a, a, a bullfighting match um, that seems oh, yeah. like it was impactful. And I know you do a lot of work with dogs, particularly pit bulls. Yeah. So where does that sense for animal well-being come from?
0: I had a dog when my, my father bought me a dog, not long after he came out of the war um the dog's name was rover and he was a thoroughbred um scottish collie a a scottish sheepdog he was black and white Mm -hmm. very classical dog and i loved this guy he was wonderful um and uh we had him a long long time and then he had to be taken and put down he was very ill um but i i never forgot that and and um when I, I was I made contact by this um, Wags and Walks in Los Angeles, um, it opened all that up again, and uh, so we began fostering dogs. Oh. Sonny and myself, and it was wonderful. We how fostered many, how many dogs do you I have? I think in total we fostered seven, all only one at a time, uh-huh. never more than I that. Gotcha. But and we only—I mean, the shortest we had one of them was two days and um the very first one we had uh was an extraordinary dog beautiful sensitive it would look you right straight into the eyes and cock its head on one side and i i could feel him trying to connect with me you know and uh it's it's so i i do what i can to to help the ones who need help and uh, you know
1: um you've lived just in absolutely extraordinary life. And you know, you did a wonderful job with the book. It's it's wildly entertaining. It's a very difficult book to put down. The stories are just absolutely legendary. So well done in that regard. I, I love it. And I know you're about to embark on quite the book tour. So you're gonna be doing a lot of media stuff. Um, I guess you know I'm curious about what it is that you want people to take from the book, but also just your life. Like what is instructive about the experiences that you have had and the lessons that you've learned as you reflect back as an 83 year old man on what's important, what's not, and, 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 and maybe even a guiding principle
0: or two that we could incorporate into our own lives. Well, they, they come down to things that I am still working on. Um, and it's awkward being a leading actor on television and film, Um, but um, being brave, being open, being sensitive to other people, tuning into them becomes more and more and more important to me. And I find that in the close friends that I have, that is their relationship with me too. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, I I wish I could go back. There are things I would like to say to my parents and my brothers, both of them, that I never said. And that makes me very, very sad that I never told them what they gave me. But this gives
1: you an, an opportunity... Yeah. To at least say it, it does. publicly, yeah.
0: It kind of does, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, my first draft of this book was over 700 pages. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's now about 440. Uh-huh. So people are saying, so what are you going to write next? And I say, no, 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 no. There's no next. <laughs> this, is it. this is it. And then the other day I thought, hmm, um, well, maybe I could find that draft that's got 350 mm-hmm. words in it that are not in my book. The director's cut. And I, the director's yeah. cut, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: to your point, that was beautifully shared. Thank you. Uh, there's a, a section in the book that, that I found quite moving, which was about your relationship with vulnerability as an actor and how that's a tool and a vehicle for unlocking truth, but also as... As a um, a way of being in the world, right the 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 power that comes with allowing yourself to be vulnerable on stage, but also with the people that you care about.
0: Yes, yes, yes. that's um, perhaps the primary objective in my life now
1: to be vulnerable with those you care about. Yes, yes. I think that's a beautiful place to end it. Thank you. You're
0: you're uh, you're
1: a, you're, a uh, you're an international gift to humanity. I just wanted to recognize you for the work that you do, of course, um, and this beautiful book that you're putting out into the world. I, I wish you much success with it. But really, how how you comport yourself as a man in the world? Like I find it to be extremely aspirational, and the way that you are so open hearted and and um, and earnest with your feelings and your friendships, uh, I think, is, 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 uh, is a guidepost for someone like myself. So, thank you for that. And uh, I, loved, I loved having the opportunity to meet you and talk thank to you. you.
0: Thank you. I've messed up at times. We all have. And I hold on to them, I don't let them go. I don't let them control me, of course. But they're there. And that was part of who I have been. And in a little tiny way, still is. And uh, so that helps me to reinforce the close relationships that I already have. They're so important.
1: I hope that you can find a little bit more grace and forgiveness for yourself. I think you owe that
0: to yourself. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for that last comment. Yeah. And with that, let's get you I back. I think I have to road. say au revoir. Thank you, sir.
1: That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch my books finding ultra voicing change in the plant power way as well as the plant power meal planner at meals.richroll.com if you'd like to support the podcast the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on apple podcasts on spotify and on youtube and leave a review and or comment Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by David Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.